My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that like it's a perfect album the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials to participate simply fill up an orange hefty renew bag with accepted items tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling that's it it's that easy it's time to rethink recycling with renew Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello! Welcome back to the Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you for joining me yet again. You are so loyal, and I want you to know that I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, This week, I am talking to the actor, Stephen Billington, about not one, not two, but three different topics. Wow, 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 right? We talked about two Spanish painters, Francisco Goya and Salvador Dali, and then we talked about a British film director, Peter Greenaway. Jam-packed episode, right? So exciting, right? I can feel your excitement. How is it possible that I can feel your excitement? Don't worry about it. Just know that it's true. Now, before we get to the interview portion of our very exciting time together, I'd like to talk a little bit about casting, if you'll allow it. I'm sure you will. So... What goes into a perfect casting choice for a film or a play or a TV show? It's pretty subjective, right? And in most cases, there's a big financial component involved in the decision. It's not purely about finding the best person for the role, but finding the person who's going to sell the most tickets or get the most downloads or streams. But recently, and I'm talking about in the last, I don't know, year or so, there's been some debate about whether it's okay for straight actors to play gay parts. And a famous actor whose name rhymes with Schmate Schmanschett said something to the effect of, I'll defend the suspension of disbelief to the death, meaning that a gay part should go to the quote-unquote best actor for the role rather than someone who has that lived experience. So the argument there is, where do we draw the line? Actors are playing pretend and they need the freedom to play roles that are totally unlike themselves. So I would say we draw a pretty clear line with race, for example. It's not okay for actors to play characters of other races, although white actors still seem to do that occasionally and inexplicably. So is that a line that needs to be drawn for sexuality as well? Uh, I would say a big part of the problem is the lack of access to opportunity. If gay people are allowed to tell gay stories on stage and screen using gay actors, then I think there's room for straight people to play gay parts too. But that's not usually the case. It might be getting a little bit better. Uh, People like Ryan Murphy like to cast gay actors in their work, but that is a very specific lane. You don't see out actors in Brokeback Mountain and Carol and Call Me By Your Name because of homophobia. Gay actors still can't really be out without their careers suffering. And casting directors, even gay ones, see it as a tremendous risk to cast gay actors in prestige gay roles. So, until there are greater opportunities for gay people to tell their own stories, the decision to cast straight Oscar winners in gay leading roles isn't really because they're the best person for the part. It's because there aren't any gay actors who've been given the opportunity to compete on that level. 
How do we make gay actors bankable? By allowing them opportunities in the first place. Hopefully, those opportunities will arise more and more often, and then maybe we'll get to a stage where actors from across the sexual spectrum will be operating on an even playing field. What? What's that you say? Get off your soapbox, sons! Okay, fine. Lecture complete. Let's keep things rolling here, shall we? You've waited long enough, and now it is time for my lovely chat with the lovely Stephen Billington about the lovely Francisco Goya, Salvador Dali, and Peter Greenaway. Why don't we talk about Goya? Yes, yes. Let's what talk a guy. About Goya. What a guy, eh? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose what the background to my relationship to those prints, the, the disasters of war kind of comes from, I think, the fact that I, I was 15 in, in 1980, and so my teens spanned the second half of the 70s and the first half of the 80s, and you're far too young to remember this, but um, uh, by, the, by the beginning of the 80s, the nuclear proliferation between the Soviets and the US had kind of reached its peak, and there was a lot of paranoia, particularly, I think, around young people, about nuclear Armageddon, basically. Mm -hmm. um, there were quite a few early 80s dramas, both in the UK, one called Threads, and one in, in the US, I can't remember what the US one was called, basically kind of giving quite a realistic account of what uh, nuclear Armageddon would look like, which obviously was kind of kind of quite scaremongering and sensational, but had a kind of grain of truth to it. And so despite the fact that in my early teens, I was in the army cadets and kind of learning how to shoot guns and, and march and clean my boots and stuff like that. I was also getting on trains and going down to London for CND marches, campaign for nuclear disarmament, and joining my mum uh, on the pickets outside Greenham Common, which was a, a, an English base that had US um, ballistic nuclear missiles with warheads there. And a lot of women kind of surrounded the camp and camped outside for, for months to try and highlight the fact that this was going on. And so, so that's the kind of background really of when I first saw these etchings in a, in a book and they really kind of blew me away. Not only are they incredibly naturalistic, which for the time, which was, you know, like 1810, 1820, that, you know, as, and as a result, they can, you know, Goy is considered one of the first modernists. Because of that, they're so completely visceral and incredibly disturbing. I don't know how well you know them yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen them before. I yeah. obviously kind of refreshed my memory for this, but... Um, yeah. yeah, and it's the scenes, it's the scenes of kind of, of execution, I think, more than anything that, that are kind of most disturbing, because those kind of familiar... You know, we see it on the news. We've seen it in, you know, Syria. We've seen it in um, uh, Libya, places like that more recently where, you know, you get see a body tied to a tree stump with the head missing or with arms missing or whatever. And it's just, it's like, it's exactly the same as, as the Napoleonic Wars that, that Goya was reacting to. You know what I mean? Nothing's changed, really. And I suppose it's that sense of how he captured something so fundamental to humanity that still is really 
looks really fresh today. And I think that's that's why it's had such an impact on me. And I remember the first time I actually saw some of the prints in the Imperial War Museum uh, in 2014 in London. And um, just seeing the actual prints of these plates right in front of you, even though they're really quite small, it just kind of... You can almost feel it. Now, it's it's kind of odd because, you know, I, I think, you know, quite rightly, a lot of people get kind of pleasure from art and from art's beauty. But when you asked me to do this talk with you, I kind of realized that most of my favorite art is really dark. And I think the reason why it is is because I kind of try and look at myself and humanity in an unflinching eye. And when something is kind of pretty for the sake of being pretty, I kind of dismiss it. Um, I want to see something real. I want to see something that affects me, that, that perhaps changes me a little bit. And I think that's one of the great purposes of art, to educate and inform and change people, you know. Yeah. And I think... Kind of appeal to their empathy. Yeah, that's um, one of the things that interests me most about talking to people about art that's really affected them is it's not necessarily about like the first time i saw et and i really experienced the magic of cinema <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know art serves many many purposes and um one of them is to challenge people and to expose them to you know the realities of the world the horrors of the world that they may not have been exposed to in any other way um mm. and i think with these etchings as well as with the painting the, the 3rd of may 1808 it was even more remarkable because they were done at a time when art that was on display in any way that people would you know in in public yeah the vast vast majority of it was a very specific style it was very you know romanticizing everything that um, absolutely was yeah and it, it or was, even the glorification of war is, yeah. is what was done before goya mm -hmm. Goya was is and, kind of talked about as being the first to actually look at it in a critical way, right? And even you know when these when that painting was made and these etchings weren't you know nobody saw them until after he died and at the time yeah, when he made years. them it was I, I don't know if it would have been dangerous for him you know he was had uh, direct access to the aristocracy he wasn't somebody who, yeah you know probably would have been shot for doing the, those etchings but definitely it would have been controversial yes certainly yeah yeah i mean he was a court painter so so yeah it would have it would have definitely affected his career i would imagine mm. which i think is is the reason why they probably weren't um shown until 30 years after his death and i, I guess like that the thing that kind of struck me is uh, the parallels to today that the way news is presented the things that people choose to believe um you know it's not the yeah. aristocracy anymore who are the people who are trying to shield um themselves and the, the rest of the world from the reality of what's going on but people try to shield themselves from it and um reading actively yeah fake news and trying to or being determined to believe what you want to believe whatever fits your narrative uh in yeah. the face of overwhelming evidence that you know art like this becomes even more important being able to have artists reflect the reality of of the world absolutely absolutely and and I, you, you know you kind of wish that you could take a whole load of trump loyalists to a goya exhibition and go look mm -hmm. 
yeah. you know, <laughs> maybe it would have an effect. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But as you said, the, the, uh, it's not just the subject of these works. It's the, the way that he created them um, and the way that he depicts the, the horrible things that are happening. That it's like totally unflinching, very naturalistic. And yeah. like the, the painting as well, really... It's like a, a bright light is shining on the person who's about yeah. to be shot. And, you know, uh, this there's a man standing right and, you know, off center facing a firing squad with his arms up. Yeah. And with, with his colleagues already dying around him and dead around him. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's just the contrast between that and, you know, a portrait of napoleon riding a steed to victory or you know whatever was the standard of the day that it was yeah the, the portraits of war were yeah those david portraits mm. of uh, of napoleon on horseback and stuff that are just completely glamorous and turn him into a god and yet what was actually happening at the time was the way that goya showed it uh so in the interest of time uh yeah why don't we have a little chat about Salvador Dali? Um, so it, for, for you, it was a bit of a, a journey to appreciation of uh, Salvador Dali. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. I kind of dismissed him really as, as you know, someone who A, did kind of very arresting images that by, by a, a lot of people in art, he wasn't really considered to be a true surrealist, certainly with the surrealists at the time, because he tried to join the group several times and they wouldn't have him. And so there's something about his kind of version of surrealism that I found kind of went with his commodification of, of his pieces in a way that it was like he saw a market rather than the surrealism kind of came to him naturally, if you know what I mean. I think, you know, there are exceptions among his paintings to that, but that's, I think, the reason why I kind of dismissed him. Um, I mean, and, you know, it's not a coincidence that, like, Andy Warhol names him as one of his biggest influences. It's that, that yeah. same... Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people talk about Andy Warhol as being the, the kind of godfather of the commodification of art, but in actual fact, Dali was doing it decades before. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, 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 it's interesting that. And so yeah, I mean, I kind of understand that kind of need to reproduce and how that's important. And everything these days is reproducible, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But to have the artists doing it themselves kind of, I don't know, to my perhaps naive and uneducated soul was, was, was a downside. Um, but then, yeah, I, uh, I had to study him because I played him in a um, play by an Australian writer called Stephen Sewell, which is called uh, The Secret Death of Salvador Dali. And it was a really fascinating journey, actually, because I kind of started at at the beginning of his paintings and one of the first ones that i discovered is is called, it's from 1945 it's just a basket of bread and it's called a basket of bread or basket of bread rather rather death than shame and it's a really beautiful rendering of a of a half a loaf of bread in a basket on the edge of a table um 
and I suppose that was the first time that I really kind of looked at his painting, actually how he painted and how what his brush strokes were like and all that. And I kind of realized in that moment that he was a bit of a genius painter. You know what I mean? Regardless of the imagination, regardless of of the sensationalism and the commodification of of all that work, the fact that the guy could paint incredibly well Mm -hmm. is impressive in and of itself. Um, So that kind of opened me up to him straight away. And then kind of studying his early life, there's this story about his dad was very religious very authoritarian and he would actually show him photographs of venereal diseased sexual organs in order to put him on the righteous path you know this is what will happen if you go around having sex with girls kind of thing Uh, which totally fucked him up he kind of himself maintained that that was one of the one of the things that fucked him up sexually um you know to uh he he couldn't have sex with girls uh, so he kind of thought he was gay so he had an affair with um, various people realized that he wasn't gay um, and ended up having relationships with women obviously most notably with Gala but was never able to actually engage in the sex act he wanked while he looked at her kind of thing which I believe is what the painting The Great Masturbator is about. It's about this frustration of only being a voyeur, of only of, of not being able to actually take part in, in the sexual act, of having to just be this kind of almost outsider to your own sex act, which, again, I found quite interesting. And, and, and then kind of just kind of touching back on my other real favourite of, his is the it's called soft construction with boiled beans premonition of civil war and it's really nasty very much has those kind of trademark dali colors the kind of blue sky the golden sand that kind of scene but it's this really vicious surreal creation with humanity destroying itself in it and so and i and i can't help but think that that Dali must have been inspired by those Goya drawings for that painting because it's just so the same kind of thing again with a kind of surrealist edge to it and Um, actually uh, using the magic of Google one of the first search results that comes up when you search for the Dali painting is a comparison a side-by-side comparison with a Goya etching that oh, really? figures in this a similar uh, um, right. configuration well, and it's you know more realistic but yeah, yeah. You're saying like is this yeah. proof of a direct influence yeah but that's uh i i guess you know re- very interesting but not that surprising that um there is that direct connection between them i mean if that if that is the case if that was you know, yeah yeah it seems it seems likely to me and and clearly to someone on on google as well so so i feel quite comfortable with that with that comparison (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting the 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 play that i did ends up having dali being judged by Raphael, who comes down to remonstrate with him as an angel, basically, for having sold out, which I think is kind of a, a little cruel. And I think the, 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 the person that I, the way that I viewed Dali before doing my research for him would probably have said something similar. But having 
having studied the guy, I kind of feel I've got more sympathy with him. I mean, he was clearly a strange bloke. You know, he clearly had some issues, but he did produce some remarkable stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think it's almost separating the work from the celebrity. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, you know, they're obviously both completely intertwined but yeah. his public persona he and I, I think he was very interested in making money he was very interested in being famous yeah. Yeah. and having this i don't know if it was necessarily the beginning of celebrity culture but it was a very specific kind of celebrity culture that it was um, very you know much. wanting to bleed into as many different kinds of media as he could you know working on film projects and working with absolutely fashion yeah designers I mean- and trying to get his brand out there whether you know that appeals to you or not i kind of a- a- admire his chutzpah <laughs> yeah his, uh, yeah you know, no i he, know exactly what you mean there is something to be admired that I, I, I think what he found in gala was someone who really pushed that side of it as well mm-hmm. to a degree that i think even he kind of started to feel a bit uncomfortable with from what i've read uh, it's kind of interesting that that is what he always wanted and yet when he got it perhaps he just wanted to hide himself away in his house in caracas because it was a bit too much even for him in the end i think yeah i just <laughs> this this quote that is right at the end of his life just before he died it was like on tv saying when you're a genius you do not have the right to die because we are necessary for the progress of humanity so i mean you know there definitely was an element <laughs> yeah. of believing uh that his you know believing his, his own, own height and, yeah, yeah. Um, thinking his shit doesn't stink so yeah. and th- that in the same way with with Andy Warhol is it's like the same kind of commodification, the same kind of like clear technical ability. That, yeah, especially earlier works from both of them. You could see that they were very, very skilled painters and drawers um, and then using those talents, still producing really impressive, really fascinating, really impactful work, but shifting the focus away from just creating work because they want to, you know, build a, a legacy as an artist to, yeah. you know, sharing sharing that fo- uh, focus with making money, being famous, getting lots yeah. of attention while they're alive instead of, yeah. you know, uh, the, the, the norm with artists, which is uh, all of the glory comes after you die. Well, exactly, yes. Yeah. Well, they were both determined that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very fascinating, complicated person. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, again, moving swiftly along. Because, yeah. You know, why not? So, Peter Greenaway, this is a first so far for me chatting to people. I have not yet come across anybody who um, has worked with someone who they uh, they want to chat about so yeah i it was really a privilege to be honest um i mean i don't know how many of your listeners know about peter greenaway um he's most famous i suppose for films like the draftsman's contract from 1982 the cook the thief his wife and her lover in 1989 he did a film in 96 called the pillow book which had one of Ewan McGregor's first film roles and I actually went up 
for that role, but he chose Ewan instead. Obviously, he had kind of some inside information and knew he was going to be massive. Um, but then, like, years later, um, in 2003, I think it was, I suddenly got this call through my agent and just to say that he offered me a part without seeing him again, without meeting up again. He'd remembered me from the meeting we'd had for uh, the Pillow book. And uh, would I like to play the title role of Tulsa Looper in the third part of three films, which were called the Tulsa Looper Suitcases? The role of Tulsa Looper is this kind of strangely, strange, fictitious guy who happened to witness most of the major events of the 20th century. So it's kind of the backdrop is is actual happenings. The films, or the whole project, which is not just films, but it's... Um, a TV series, uh, CD-ROMs, art exhibitions, like a full kind of multimedia thing. But the the story takes place in the nuclear age, basically, from the discovery of plutonium through to the uh, the first use of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so this guy, Tulsa Looper, happens to be at lots of important points in history. And he's played in the first movie by J.J. Field, uh, and actually in the first two movies. And then myself and Roger Rees play the character in the third movie. And the, I think the reason for kind of... He, ha, he cast a lot of different actors in lots of the roles in this series because part of it is... A, because he's writing what is kind of ostensibly a history, but a kind of in a kind of mockumentary kind of way, I suppose. So because history is all about memory and everyone's memory of a, of a particular event is different to everyone else's, he can change the actor playing a particular role because, you know, we might now be seeing it from a different person's point of view. And so the character, while he's still got blonde curly hair, might look slightly different than he did from the other person's perspective, if you know what I mean. I don't know if any of that's making any, <laughs> any yeah, sense. No, no, no. Yeah. But yeah, he did that a lot in these films. Films. He's he's an amazing filmmaker, really, but is totally shunned by his own com- country. Um, he his films get no money from the UK at all, even though he's British. Uh, he's they're always his films are always uh, massive European co-productions put together by his producer Kies Cassander who's Dutch and he pulls in money from Lithuania and France and Germany and Spain and Luxembourg and all sorts of different places and, and makes these movies as a result with this amazing Dutch crew and I suppose what kind of really crystallized the experience for me was that I did two shoots with him one in um the second one in Amsterdam and the first one in, in Barcelona, uh, where we did some kind of exterior stuff. But the main interior scene took place at this old hospital in Barcelona, hospital uh, of the, the Cross and St. Paul in Barcelona. It's this kind of really ornate style of Catalan modernism. Uh, it was kind of built in the 20s, I think. 1920s. But it's this amazing place uh, that can now be used, used to be a hospital, it's no longer it can now be used as a, as a museum and it can be used as a as film set, which is what we used it for. And I just remember I was I was in this scene with a few other actors and 
including the Spanish actor Jordi Moya, who's been in lots of kind of like he was in he was the baddie in Riddick and stuff like that in those mm. kind of Hollywood action movies. And it was being lit in such a way that I just had to go round and and have a look at you know what was what what it looked like because this whole set had been set up and he'd put all the characters in and he wanted a kind of tableau and so he created all the kind of characters draped around this room with kind of ornate furniture and chaiselongs and stuff like that and I went and had a look around the monitor and I looked through the monitor at this scene and it was I don't know I kind of felt like I was in in the middle of a Caravaggio or a mm. or a Rembrandt. Just the way uh, it's uh, Rainier van Brummelen who's the um, who's the cinematographer on that, and he truly does paint with light. It's incredible. It's so lush, and even on a flat screen, three dimensional. Just the way that it's done, and the way that Peter arranged the characters was very reminiscent of those kind of old master paintings as well. And it was a really kind of important moment for me because I've always kind of thought of theatre and, and film obviously as an art form and to myself to a certain degree as a as an artist but that was a crystallizing moment of kind of feeling that I was truly inside a piece of art and it wasn't just to do with the beauty of it it was also to do with the message that was being told and and how visceral the the scene was mm-hmm. yeah it's so amazing when you can see films that the the way the scene is set the way it's filmed the lighting all of the other components that can seem not invisible but you know are not the focus in some films when someone takes all of those elements and brings them to the forefront and you know really engages the audience with both those elements and the story Mm -hmm. it's it's absolutely amazing and it is like exactly what you said like almost creating paintings with with light yeah real life that's amazing incredible the other thing was the other interesting thing was that like he wouldn't have a a traditional schedule it was the it was the it was the most stress-free set i've ever been on because he would kind of shoot everything to the highest quality that he could and if he didn't complete the schedule for the day he'd just drop that scene and find another way to work in the use it as a spur to his creativity and find another way to work in that piece of information into the film like he'd use you know talking heads picture in picture or text running across the bottom of the screen or some kind of double exposure kind of image ringing in that part of the story and what I found really interesting about that process was that he makes films like an artist rather than in the traditional way oh we have to do this we have to complete the the schedule well no I'm going to get all the story in I know I've got these allotted number of days and I will do as much as I can in that allotted number of days but I won't let it affect the quality of my work which Mm. is unheard of so yeah a very special experience yeah and i think those two anecdotes really say a lot about the way his brain works being observant enough and careful enough to remember people that he's liked who yeah come in to read for him for years and years and saying like i'm going to keep this person in my back pocket and i'm going to find something that's right for them 
but also having the flexibility and the creativity to to be able to say this is the story that i want to tell and if the you know we we don't get it on film on the day if it doesn't turn out the way that i want to while we're shooting it i'm not going to abandon my ideas i'm going to stick to you know the the core of the idea will still remain the same but it's just telling the story in a different way yeah yeah, and using really imaginative means in which to do that as well, which which really impressed me. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we got it. Yeah, we got it. I think that was, um, that was pretty great. Cool. Um, cool. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. This was a real pleasure. Oh, it was a great pleasure um, for me too. Thank you. How do people find you if they would like to find out more about you? Oh, um, well, yeah, I'm on IMDb and um, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I guess. I don't have a website yet. I'm kind of working on that at the moment. But um, yes, I guess in those places. Great. Under your name on all of those? Stephen Billington, yes. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for chatting to me. You're very welcome. We'll speak soon. Yes, indeed. Bye. Well, that was fun. I liked it. I hope you did too. Thanks again to Steven. Seek out his work, please. He is a tremendous actor. I promise. Okay, now, recommendations. Firstly, the new Azari album, which is called Atriarch. My review? I like it. It's a techno-y, house-y, soul-y kind of thing, so check it out if you like any of those categories of music. I also read a book called The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. It's essentially a novel about a home invasion, but I thought it was really tense and unique and ambiguous in the best ways possible. A lot of open-endedness, which some reviewers on Amazon found maddening, but I totally loved it. Uh, It's a pretty horrifying book, so avoid it if you don't like scary stuff, okay? So there's a couple of little suggestions for you. Do you have any for me? Tweet them at me or DM me, please. I am always looking for new art to dig into. I'm at Spark Parade on all social media. Also, please rate and review the show, too. It really helps a lot, and it only takes nine seconds. Exactly nine. That's a scientific fact. So thanks in advance for writing a lovely review for me. Okay. All right. I will let you get back to your life. Thanks for listening. You're the best. See you next week. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.